Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is The Guardian. We know how iconic broken promises reinforce the worst stereotypes of politicians. So I think the only way you get through this is in a call and response situation where the government is responding for pressure not to flatten the tax system, which I think is kind of what's happened in Britain. Hello, lovely people. You're listening to Australian Politics. I'm Catherine Murphy, Guardian Australia's political editor and the host of this show. And yes, I'm back. (laughs) Thank you so much to Sarah Martin for filling in so admirably while I've been cloistered away, writing words, typing furiously, uh, producing an upcoming quarterly essay. I'm with you today back on the show for one of our fortnightly episodes about the latest Guardian Essential poll and I'll be chewing the fat as always with my very good friend Peter Lewis who runs Essential Media. In this conversation, we canvas a whole lot of topics actually, the stage three tax cuts, which is a headache for the Labor government. We speak about voter perceptions and concerns about personal privacy over data in the wake of uh, the Optus episode, which I'm sure listeners are painfully aware about. Uh, We have a chat about The Voice and where that's up to, The Voice to Parliament. Uh, We also talk around uh, about the various outstanding issues associated with the new National Integrity Commission that the Albanese government wants to legislate by the end of the year. And just for something different, we indulge Pete, who is interested in how our poll respondents feel about humanity's prospects over over many thousands of years into the future. That's just a bit of fun. This conversation was recorded on Tuesday and it was moderated by Ebony Bennett, who is the Deputy Director of the Australia Institute and pulls together the webinar version of this conversation for Pole Position. And Eb's about to kick off our conversation. So we're very excited because Murfaru is back from writing her quarterly essay. We're very pleased to see her. And as always, Catherine, it has been a massive fortnight in federal politics. Last week, the Attorney General introduced the National Anti-Corruption Commission legislation to Parliament, uh, long in the making. Uh, National Cabinet scrapped the isolation requirements for COVID, um, which will begin, I think, from mid-October. The budget is, of course, fast approaching. And before that, the Australia Institute's Revenue Summit, which will be this Thursday, and bring with it, I think, a lot more talk about scrapping or amending, at the very least, the Stage 3 tax cuts, which are just become the whipping boy for everything that um, <clears throat> can't be afforded in the budget, as well as things like the need for a windfall profits tax. So that economic debate is really heating up. And, of course, Pete Lewis from Essential Media, here to unpack all the figures with us as well. Thank you, Catherine and Pete. Catherine, first of all, to you, it's been a while since we've seen you. We've missed you. Uh, We tried not to do anything too exciting while you're away, but as I mentioned, you know, there's 
been a fair bit happening. How's it all feel being back on deck? Well, a little bit strange, yeah, the truth. <laughs> I've been sitting in a, well, not a dark room because it's hard to write words in a dark room without sort of destroying your eyesight even more, but I have been sitting in a very quiet place writing a lot of words uh, about the Prime Minister and the and the consequences of the election results. So I'm still getting my land legs back, peeps, in terms of what's actually happening on a day-to-day basis. But as usual, Eb has given you uh, the good oil on what has occurred over the last fortnight. Uh, the sort of anti-corruption commission's a, a really key milestone, I think, for the government for the crossbench and for, dare we say, the voters who voted for it. Uh, so obviously it's it's going to be the only thing I'd say about it at this point. I mean, obviously there are some uh, highly respectable arguments about detail, particularly the issue of whether hearings occur in public and and what, what the terms are for those public hearings. All of that's to play out. I would just say one thing procedurally, uh, the Albanese government has been very clear it wants this passed by the end of the year. Uh, I'm, look, sitting back at my desk after five weeks away and looking at the parliamentary sitting calendar, I'm thinking to myself, my God, there is a lot of business uh, that this parliament has to get through. In, uh, in the closing sitting weeks of this year. Now, I'm not suggesting that I think it's not going to happen. I think it would be more likely that the government had put on an extra sitting week or two than just say, oh, look, we did our best, but we can't quite manage to get that through. I'm just saying that as a watch this space, seems to me there's a lot of business to get through between now and the end of the year. So then let's segue now to the budget and stage three. So we're three weeks away from budget day today. Three weeks to go, three weeks to kick off. And uh, obviously this will be the Albanese government's first budget. The first budget of a new government is generally a pretty critical document, both economically and politically. Uh, In terms of stage three, uh, yeah, look, there's a real head of steam building around that package. These tax cuts, uh, not exclusively but predominantly, uh, benefit high income earners. We've had a really astonishing <laughs> pirouette in London over the last uh, 24 hours where the new British Prime Minister Liz Truss had a similar tax cut package uh, to the one being proposed in Australia and was basically shouted down by her own people, the financial markets and the IMF, uh, and has had to do a very inelegant pirouette and dump the package. Uh, It'll be interesting to see whether or not those events give the new government a bit of cover to think about whether or not the Stage 3 tax cuts will proceed as legislated or not. I detect the beginning of a debate in the government about it. I think if we look closely uh, at what the Treasurer has said, particularly over the last week, uh, I think his language has shifted in relation to this issue. He's still saying, well, <laughs> we, you know, you saw what we said at the election on the stage, three tax cuts, of course, and then uh, proceeds to make a, a quite pithy and compelling case for why they shouldn't proceed with them, basically. Uh, so we've got to see how that plays out. Obviously, there was a debate in the Labor Party in opposition prior to the legislation of these tax cuts about whether or not they should be supported or not. You know, that basically ended up with Labor playing a bit of me too with the Morrison government at that point. It did not want another election fought on tax, having just lost 
the 2019 election on a death tax that didn't exist. So you can understand why the new government is very touchy about matters tax. And obviously, if the Labor Party shifts on stage three, there is no ifs or buts about this. It would be a broken election promise. They told the voters prior to the election that uh, that package would proceed as legislated. But look, substantively, you know, these tax cuts were a bad idea when they were legislated. They have become a worse idea since in terms of the general economic conditions. Uh, seems to me, even though these tax cuts don't start for a couple more years, it's a brave government indeed when we're standing basically on the precipice at the moment of, of the third major economic downturn in 12 years that you would respond to that risk by punching a hole in your tax base. That seems to me to be not the smartest policy move. But I think it's also important, though, to emphasise that uh, the Prime Minister has uh, been very, very clear since the election about election promises and the primacy of election promises. We saw a whole debate about ambition in climate policy. A lot of people wanted the Labor Party to shift to a more, well, a more ambitious emissions reduction target for 2030 because that's what the science would suggest needs to happen. They didn't. They hugged their election commitment very tightly. Uh, and, you know, will they on the stage three tax cuts? Well, that's going to be a really interesting story, I reckon, over the next three weeks to see how that pans out. Yeah, Pete, is that your sense that there's a big debate there to be had now? It seemed like mm. for a long time there was, they were not for turning, so to speak, mm. and, and now there seems to be wiggle room. Yeah, I feel like we might be in the middle of spitballing next um, fortnight's questions even um, <laughs> as we are going over this week's. I, I've got two things to add to this. The first is that I reckon as long as we call them stage three tax cuts, they're going to be very hard to get rid of. And I am interested in whether people have a different view if we call it for what it actually is, which is a flattening of our progressive tax system in a way that has never been contemplated over the last 100 years. And that might be a bit push-poly, but we can find, you know, I, I do think the framing of tax cuts is the very, very hard bit. I totally supported Labor not engaging in this before the election, but I am curious about whether there will be an appetite for a broken promise. Um, I think there's a few moving pieces here. One is the position of crossbenchers and teals. Another is, you know, the dream for Labor, I think, is if the teals could create a sense from the Liberals that they're going to be exposed if they keep pushing for um, these changes to the tax system to benefit the, the highly paid as well. Um, but I think I said it a fortnight ago, so I'll only say it for Catherine because I assume everyone else was here, but <laughs> is the bigger risk to break the promise or keep the promise. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be the, the rubric. Like we, we know how iconic broken promises reinforce the worst stereotypes of politicians. So I think the only way you get through this is in a call and response situation where the government is responding for pressure not to flatten the tax system, which I think is kind of what's happened in Britain. Because, um, yeah. A, you're right, the economics is stupid. B, it is totally against the principles of the society that we thought we were living in and has been living in for a, quite a long time. And third, 
it is a magic pudding of everything that people want Labor to do. They can blame the bloody stage three tax cuts for the reason they can't get their pet project up. And of course, there is um, an amplification of that because you can only spend that money once. But gee, it's a lot of money to spend. It is a lot of money to spend. And you're absolutely right about that call and response because at the moment, the call and response is people are calling for funding for various things. And the treasurer is like, well, we inherited a really tight budget position. We can't afford to do all of those things. And people immediately are like, well, if you can't afford to do that, how can we afford these these tax cuts. Can I just inject one thought, though, into that? I agree with both of your diagnostic, um, but the thing about uh, this shift, if if they execute it, right, and I would put that as an if at this point because, like I said, the dialogue, I mean, Pete's formulation there is a very good one. What's the most risky thing? Keep the promise or break it. And that crystallises the question very neatly because it's it's not cost free. I don't mean in a budget sense, I'm talking politically. Politically. Either either road you take, it's not cost free, right? But in in the event they shift, I I agree. One of of the pressures at the moment, this is why we've seen such unanimity around a, a bunch of very respectable interest groups who are all, you know, basically coming to the new government because of this pent-up demand, right? Mm. Not enough. It's happened over the last 10 years. Now we've got real problems starting to manifest in social services, in health, in universities, in in all kinds of spaces, right, that require public investment in order to fix these problems. So it's all this pent-up demand. Everybody's coming saying what I need to do is actually really important. We need to find the resources to do it. But if they do shift on stage three, the way this will be sold to the public and not, I I mean, as a bit of flim-flam or spin, I mean, the reason they'll do it is a a fiscal buffer exercise, right? We are, I I don't want to bring us all down. I don't want to be Eeyore so early in this week's episode. I'm just saying the global economic position at the moment is genuinely dicey. Right, there is a very high probability that the US goes into recession because the Fed is just banging these interest rate rises, right? The bluntest of blunt instruments to this very large economy. The US looks on the path to a recession at this point in time. One of the reasons the reaction in Britain was so visceral to this unfunded tax cut package on the part of Truss and her new chancellor was the prevailing economic conditions, right? If Labor shifts course on this, it'll be an exercise in trying to rebuild some fiscal buffers to basically have some room to move in the event of a downturn here. So I I wouldn't necessarily say that not proceeding with the tax cuts automatically, uh, you know, sort of unleashes buckets of money for various important causes, because I think it'll be sold, presented as a precautionary principle. Now, obviously, economic conditions may be quite different in 12 months' time or 18 months' time. Possibly if we've got the worst sort of global situation and there is another downturn, we come down and we come back up, right, in which case obviously growth improves the budget bottom line that creates, you know, fiscal room for progressive priorities. I'm just I'm just adding that layer of disclaimer or nuance because 
That's my feeling. If they shift, and everyone heard the if in that sentence, I hope, if they shift, I think it'll be the whole budget will will shift to a rebuilding the fiscal buffers exercise. Yeah, which makes sense facing down a potential recession when you've already got quite a lot of debt and basically this wouldn't, as you said, be paying for things prospectively going forward. They haven't even come in yet. It is that exercise um, not only in some buffer room but just protecting budget revenues. Like this is a big hole in budget revenues permanently, um, particularly if you're in dire straits and, and we need to... Keynesian economically, you know, um, fiscal stimulus our way out of a potential yeah, that's, that's recession. Right. You've got yeah. to shore up the tax base in order to have or in order to have fiscal firepower, right? You yeah. may or may not need it, but you need to. You basically need to harden the tax base in order to give yourself room to move when debt levels are at you know are at their current level. Like it's costing us a lot of money to service the interest on on this borrowing. Now, the government, of course should have borrowed during COVID. <laughs> they should have done what they did, uh, saved a lot of businesses, saved a lot of lives. I'm not now all of a sudden turning into a sort of, you know, oh, well, that was all wasted spending, which is the government's line, by the way, which is which is rubbish. It wasn't all wasted spending. It was yeah. some of it was actually very important and un- unprecedented, really, for a, for a coalition government. But anyway... We, we do actually need to get onto the numbers at some, at some point and stop raving about this, but it, it is fascinating, but it's sort of got, it's got a few layers, right? Um, and so I think people need to be a bit attentive to all the layers because they'll influence the decision-making. Yeah, no, it's a very good point. But having said that, let's dive into the numbers. Pete. So I've never, never asked this question before, perceptions of the future for humanity, um, and it's a total indulgence on the part of the pollster because I've just been reading this fantastic book, which I commend to everyone, by a moral philosopher called William McCaskill who's written a book called What We Owe the Future, and given that I do polling, I thought I could flesh out some of his ideas with a few questions in this week's report. So McCaskill's proposition is that if we want to think about long-termism, we're not talking about the next election cycle. We're not talking about our kids or even our grandkids. If you accept science and avoiding an extinction catastrophe, which is not off the cards, humanity is likely to go for at least another million years. So rather than us being in the end of days, we're at the very beginning of the journey. And his book is really fascinating because it's an invitation for people to really practice long-term thinking. So I was interested just in asking people, well, just 10, 100, 1,000 and 10,000 years, whether people think things will be better or worse. And for those listening to the podcast that can't see the graphs, so in 10 years, we're on balance worse off 42, 33 with 25% unsure. In 100 years, we still think we're worse off, but there's more of us unsure. It's 39 worse 28 better, 32 unsure. Then you get to a 1,000 years when the only person in this room that's remembered is St. Catherine. Um, (laughs) 36 worse, 22 better, 42 unsure. And then 10,000 years, it's still worse, 35% worse, 20 better and 45% unsure. What does this all mean? It means that the Jetsons aren't probably going to happen. There's not this... (laughs) at least in our view, there's not a positive future that we are setting up. And I'll 
apologies for the indulgence, but it's been in my mind right through the last week. And there's this beautiful quote McCaskill writes, which is, do the very long-term consequences of our actions fade out over time like ripples on a pond? No, rather every year like clumsy gods, we radically change the course of history. So I've been reading all this stuff and amusing over it when two things happened last week, which we have also asked questions on, which... Um, we'll get to in a sec, but one was the Optus data breach, which is the lived experience of the data extraction economy and um, Professor Ed Santo's model law on facial recognition technology. We'll get into those in a sec. Eb's just brought up the next slide again for those that are listening on the pod, essentialreport.com.au. We don't think the government's doing enough at 43%, but if you look at those trend lines down from 62% when Scott went to Hawaii in the middle of the bushfires, um, 32% doing enough, 13% doing too much. Most of those were meeting at CPAC over the weekend and um, 12% don't know. But what back to McCaskill, what's interesting is that he's a young um, academic, I think from Oxford, he's a Scotsman. Again, I, I commend his book to it. He says that the chances are humanity in some form will get through a climate event and even a nuclear event, there will be humanity surviving. His real concern in terms of, the happiness or otherwise for the future is the speed to which we reach what is called automated general intelligence, where AI becomes self-learning because his analysis is that systems that thrive into the future and give us a prosperous future will have the requisite diversity and friction to deal with different circumstances. So the real concern around the way that we are building a data economy and around collecting information and training machines to predict what we're going to do next is you take away that friction, you take away that space to deal with crises. So this isn't really politics, is it? But I find it very interesting. So back to the here and now. I'm going to have to chase up this book now. No, it's a ripper. Um, so we are concerned at our... Um, information being scammed at the moment. Um, we're, we're concerned about our bank accounts. Interesting, we did ask people if they had been part of the Optus breach and that the, the numbers go up 10% as opposed to others in terms of very concerned. But, you know, we're all getting scam emails and texts and um, God knows what's going on with our social media identity. But that's leading to support, but still reasonably lukewarm for regulation. So, 51% support for tightening up the amount of personal information companies can collect about us, 46 tightening up the amount of personal information government collect about us, and then there's large numbers of um, don't know and only about a quarter of people feeling saying they feel comfortable about it, and then slightly less but still majority support for regulating the use of facial recognition technology. So before we round this out, and I realise this is very niche, at the moment... There are reforms to privacy law proposals sitting on the Attorney General's desk. We have not updated our privacy laws in any meaningful way for 40 years. The, the proposals talk about expanding the definition of personal information, about tightening up what consent looks like, but also about creating courses of action so that if you are breached, you can actually um, take action against those that haven't handled your information um, securely. And then the second part, which is the model law that um, the UTS academics released last week, would be that high-impact uses of facial recognition should basically be heavily regulated to the extent the regulator can look under the bonnet at how it works. So both 
with privacy and facial recognition technology, there is meaningful reform sitting on the desk of our mild-mannered Attorney General, who I dub in this piece the um, Michael J. Fox of Australian politics because he does have the opportunity with these laws to shape what happens next in the kind of reverse time machine that talks about family ties, Michael J. Fox. No, no, no more. um, No, no more back to the future, Michael J. Fox. I'll I'll take anyone. (laughs) Um, There's quite a bit to unpack from uh, those. (laughs) You reckon? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah, I hadn't given much thought to what life will be like in 10,000 years, but um, an interesting exercise. I'm actually a bit surprised at the optimism of people a hundred years from now um perhaps they don't read as much climate research as Catherine and I might come across in our- <laughs> oh, um, yeah or Cormac McCarthy you know <laughs> exactly just to get the IPCC just to Cormac McCarthy um, but Pete I did want to talk about the Optus breach a bit more because obviously we're we're way behind but it does seem to me that it is only when it's quite personal to people Mm. and it's something as personal as your Medicare card and your passport number that it really does hit home how much these documents are essentially your passport into the digital world, into shopping, into setting up utilities, all of that kind of stuff now. Yeah, well, this is the Overton window, I think, that's just opened for regulators. So we've been banging on and probably putting on my Centre for Responsible Technology hat here, we've been banging on for the need for improved data privacy laws for a long time and everyone just yawns. But when you receive a note from a phone company that you may not have been a customer for for a number of years saying, oh, by the way, we've been holding your Medicare and um, driver's licence and someone's got in and we don't know if they've got in through uh, picking the lock or just we left the door open. It, it kind of does um, train the mind a little bit. And I think the the really interesting, you know, and I've been watching the way the debate has rolled out over the last week and what's been really interesting is just people going, wait, what? They're holding that for that long? And there's obviously a couple of moving pieces here. One is that there has been requirements to register particularly mobile phone users because of um, crime, money laundering, all that sort of stuff. Um, more broadly, we really changed the way we looked at privacy after 9-11 terror attacks and government convinced us, I think, and convinced convinced um, the internet companies that we use that it was in our interest for people to track web web movement and collect more and more information. And then out of that came the companies themselves going, oh, gee, we could make a lot of um, money ourselves if we could follow people around the internet and knew what they liked. And then from there, we've ended up in a world where that's become the business model of the social media platforms. And in a different piece I wrote last week, um, I did ask the question whether the um the cure has become worse than the disease we were trying to solve in the first place, given that I think the the demonstrable risk to technology on the business models the major platforms have, um, sorry, the major risk to democracy, the technologies is doing fine, um, is probably greater than the terror threat that it was originally set to um to cure. So yeah, certainly if uh, you look at some of those Facebook revelations about the the way Facebook has been used in Myanmar and Yemen and how America, young girls, <laughs> yeah, everywhere. So, so yeah. I just think that we do have a moment maybe to reset. The, the really interesting thinking in this space is being pushed by actually Tim Berners Lee, who was the father of the internet, 
who is pushing for Web 3.0, where instead of us handing our data over, we would have our own personal online data identity that we give people access to and they never hold it. They just get get a mark. And it seems to me that, again, that's all felt a bit sci-fi, but given where we are at the moment. But it, it might be a time to start fast-forwarding those sorts of conversations about how we can create true data sovereignty um, as individuals. And back to McCaskill's point, to create a more diverse system that isn't being pushed into a single brittle system, but one that is maintaining the diversity that might give us a history 10,000 years down the track. Yeah, Catherine, I don't want to jump that far ahead, but um, it does strike me that the Attorney General, it seemed like, you know, the Treasurer's got the budget coming. Chris Bowen was fairly um, out of the gates with the 43% legislation. The AG's got the ICAC um, legis- or NAC legislation that he introduced last week. He's also doing that review of AAT and yep. the political appointments um, that kind of um, messed up that system. And now we've got, yeah, this catch-up really on on data. I mean, the government's got its work cut out for it well, in a lot of areas. Sort of, I mean, I was trying to make that point just in relation to the parliamentary sitting calendar, which is sort of <laughs> a manifestation of it, but it's kind of like, oh, my God, it's like, I sometimes look at them and think it's like, you know, the fire hose of, you know, the last 10 years has just been opened up onto them. It's sort of like, God, there's all these things that need doing. And yeah. uh, and then you get into a sort of bandwidth issue in terms of the government, right? Like how how quickly can humans process information and, and move? Um, so it's tricky, um, mm. you know, but the, all of these things are urgent and important. I think the sort of big conundrum, uh, Pete said, in relation to the, the numbers that we just went through, and again, if you're listening to the pod, go to the website and have a look at the charts that that'll make this conversation a bit more comprehensible. I think you thought those numbers were a bit low. I actually thought they were quite high, only from the the sort of starting proposition that I think a whole lot of the sort of digital privacy debate is a is a, a debate among engaged people. For starters, I think there's a whole bunch of Australians who have no idea to what extent surveillance capitalism is part of their lives. Um, And also, so you've got like perhaps, you know, a a sort of cohort of not very engaged Australians who don't realise the amount of uh, data they're personal data they're trading away and also how much they're tracked online by all kinds of corporations, Mm. right? So there's that cohort. Then we've got a cohort of young people who's socialised by uh, social media, ironically, ha-ha, anyone see the connection here, uh, sort of don't, sort of see the whole concept of privacy as sort of anachronistic, right? They've they've grown up in this environment where, you know, everything is, everything is, is public, everything is online, everything is sort of posted to social media and shared amongst groups of friends or wider groups, right? So their sort of starting proposition on privacy is quite different yeah. to... Uh, you know, the, the privacy that we might think about or others others listening to this conversation. So sort of culturally, like young people who are much more fluent about this stuff care less about it. So then it becomes what's the call to action? Like what's the rallying point? What's the thing that kind of tips over mm. into this being something that really inconveniences yeah. you or where, you know, privacy becomes an identity like, like the other you know, important components of identity that young people are particularly motivated by, right? Mm. So I don't know. 
I don't know. I've always found privacy a really boring, hard thing to even as a political campaigner get excited about, but I do think there is something around giving people control of their identity that might might get us there. But just to round out that discussion, the last thing is that the government has said they're going to put something in about privacy maybe by the end of the year. The real concern is they just increase the penalties and not do any of the structural stuff that's really important and has been kicked down the road forever. So that's the bit that I'm sure people like you, Catherine, will be looking at carefully as, mm-hmm. as this debate matures. Mm-hmm. Uh, Well, it might be time just about to go to questions from the audience. James Bannon has said, what's the feeling about the government scrapping the stage three tax cuts? I do feel like we've gone uh, into that in a fair bit of detail at the beginning. About five fathoms deep into that, James. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Are they waiting to be forced? I feel like, yes, you know, (laughs) the government had promised and, um, and now it's really up to the community. Pete, we've had this conversation in the past to create the space for them to shift on Mm. this. Yeah, I think the government wants to see, be seen to be listening and responding if they do. But I, I do also take Catherine's point from earlier that probably magic pudding politics isn't the answer either. But it's a choice between whether it is a framing of delaying or deferring tax cuts, which is really, really hard, or just kind of reopening, you know, the Faustian pact they really made to wave through a flattening of the tax system before the last election. Or I feel like they could just rely on the economics, you know, like the changing circumstances there are dramatic. Does anyone know what happened when the devil went down to Georgia? Did Robert Johnson end up like, Well, he did the deal at the crossroads, didn't he? Yeah, but what happened? Did he go to hell? Oh, God, I don't know. I feel like he sold his soul, but maybe I've just watched. Yeah, this is this this might be the next column. I need to do some research. <laughs> anyway, about stage three, we did we did. Yeah, we're done. Exhausted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're grateful for the question, but the only other thing though to emphasise again is that, um, like, I think look, I think the stage three tax cuts are bad policy, and they were bad policy when Labor signed up to them prior to the election. Uh, and, you know, I think the sensible thing is, given circumstances have changed demonstrably, that uh, Labor should decouple from them. But but, I, but I'm kind of uncomfortable about it as well because it's sort of like as a journalist who's, you know, bang, bang on ad nauseum, you know, to the extent of, you know, sending readers to sleep about the importance of integrity and accountability, I think election promises are part of that. So it's sort of, I think it is genuinely difficult. That's Mm. all. Yeah. Um, Just while we're on tax, the next question is from John Knox, who asks about could the government be convinced to reform negative gearing and capital gains tax concessions um, in the context of it difficult for first being difficult for first home buyers? Um, I feel like there's less appetite and public discourse around that at the moment, Catherine, but it strikes me that the housing crisis essentially could, again, send the government back to the drawing board on a whole range of things, including those concessional arrangements that make housing basically, um, you know, something for investors instead yeah. of something to live in. affordable for, you know, young people um, and, and a lot of older people as well. Um, yeah, look, I think the way they'll they'll approach the general issue of the tax system and concessions is via some sort of policy work really over this term and, you know, seek to sort of develop a set of propositions, you know, that they can take to the voters at the next election. I don't, I don't think on those areas of concessions and other 
really tricky areas that it'll be one of those, you know, surprise situations. <laughs> um, I think uh, I think there's a whole, and I, and I confess, I thought this is how they'd deal with stage three too. I thought that they would lock in behind stage three and they still might, right, do it this way, but then set in train some policy work over the course of this term where you could go and seek a mandate basically to do this, that, and the other thing that would be more sensible in a policy sense. And I would certainly put those concessions that our questioner is flagging in that basket. Mm. The next question I've got is around The Voice, uh, and it says, while The Voice has widespread support in the community, there seems to be a growing trend of anti-voice speakers on talk shows and in the media. Will these evaporate or is the trend growing? Catherine, can I start off with you on that one? I just, yeah, my, my blood just ran a little bit cold then. Um, yes, look, it's 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 the risk associated with this debate. Uh, you know, we're not all kind of like a uni mind in the country about it. There are differences. Uh, some differences are respectable, others less so. But there are differences uh, both uh, in the at the level of indigenous community and leadership. And, uh, and also in, in the community beyond. Uh, and I think the Prime Minister has sort of tried, well, I mean, he's grabbed the voice as a really important piece of unfinished business in the country, and he's right about that. And he's tried to run with it, and he's sort of trying in very typically Anthony Albanese fashion with this sort of degree of ambiguity, <laughs> It's sort strategic of strategic ambiguity. Well, he's, he's yeah. uh, you know, you might even get be getting a preview of a certain thesis here. It's sort of, no, like he's sort of um, mm. he's very he's very good at sort of when things get uh, difficult. Uh, he you know you can crash through something or you can just sort of eddy through it like a little cloud. Um, and that is kind of like he does resort to that. So I think he's sort of, you know, up there at, uh, at Gama, he sort of started the debate, he legitimised the debate, he said, look, here's the broad proposition, but, I, you know, I don't want to preclude, you know, a discussion about this, blah, 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 withdrawal, right? Then obviously people come out, um, they have various things to say about it, uh, and the environment can get very choppy, particularly given, you know, our polling, Pete suggests that people, uh, you know, are, are positively disposed, but they know bugger all about it, not to put too fine a point on it, right? What is this change? What does it mean? So, um, you know, will it get worse? Uh, it's possible. Um, I hope not, but it's possible. Um, I do think, though, you know, we like things to be neat and tidy, uh, you know, we sort of um, we have this sort of unreasonable expectation sometimes of politics where we do two things. We, we project this sort of West Wing sort of fantasy on it, you know, that it's all just, you know, it's all a grand plan and everybody's perfect and nobody makes mistakes, right, which is obviously silly. So politics is the human business. It's messy. Messy stuff happens. The community, we're humans, we're messy, we don't agree. There will be debates. What does it mean for whether or not this carries or not? It's a bit too soon to say. I think, uh, and I think we might have discussed this on the show before. I think, look, the Prime Minister's plan is be a bit amb ambiguous. However, line up the Premier's check, uh, line up a number of voices in corporate Australia check, um, make it a sort of an issue of progress that a lot of people can rally around, check, uh, put your ear earmuffs on, barrel through, hope for the best. And uh and I think that's basically the plan. Again, we've got to see what will make this a lot easier is if 
the opposition gets on board and doesn't uh, sort of, uh, you know, play a Republican type, mm. a Republic campaign role. Uh, but anyway, we, we get to see how that all pans out. So that's a less than definitive, definitive answer that underscores the point about humans being messy. See, we don't know everything. We can't predict everything and people will disagree with one another. How does the story end? Don't know. Hope it ends well. I've been thinking about the referendum a lot and I just want to throw one more thing in that's been striking me. So we think referendums are the same as elections and I'm not sure if they are. So uh, an election is very much vote for me and it's a stage fight really in Australian politics between two sides to form government. I think one of the reasons referendums go down is that no cases tend to be run like an election and yes, cases are trying to create something different to an election, which is a sense of possibility to change the very structure of our constitution. And if I, I think that's where the Republic can movement was lost. We, we had the no case being run by the best negative campaigner of their generation in Tony Abbott, and we had um, the yes case trying to fight him in a cage fight or or take the weight out of it. Now. I'm watching the way that both the Greens and the right are approaching the um, the voice with a very loud no voice as that kind of fight club version. We are against this. And I see Labor and elements of the opposition as well just wanting to almost simplify the proposition out in a zen-like state. So I, I think I've said this before. I think... The way that the voice lands is that the statement that from the heart was an invitation, the constitutional vote is an RSVP um, to say, yep, we welcome welcoming you into our system. We are not too prescriptive on the way that occurs because that will change over time and we don't want to enshrine it in the constitution because that would create a third chamber, but we want to put an obligation on the executive to, to ensure that First Nations people are heard. Now, there's a couple of things that flow from that. The first is that the yes-no isn't, if it's a head-on contest, I think we lose or that those that want change lose. If we can find the space to broaden out the proposition um, and talk about the forward journey without getting caught up too much in the detail and basically trust our leaders and First Nations people to find a way to come together, then it will be a very different sort of campaign. Now, I might be being a little bit, um, you know, dewy-eyed there. I don't know. But I do know that, that in that head-on, it's really hard and history's shown it's really hard to get yes cases up. Mm. Uh, the next question that I've got is around the new National Anti-Corruption Commission, uh, the NAC, and it says... Uh, we need the, well, it's not really a question, it's more of a statement. <laughs> we need the ability to have public hearings and strong whistleblower protections in there, uh, which agreed and uh, a lot of uh, legal experts uh, would agree with you there as well, Paul. But, Catherine, that is emerging as one of the really one of the only, and won't be the only, there's always devil in the detail, but the, the kind of key area of contention, the one thing that's kind of new that wasn't flagged prior to the 
legislation being introduced and something that the Attorney General himself in campaigning, you know, on this issue has really highlighted the importance of public hearings and yet he's kind of put this really high bar that the NAC has to clear before it can hold them. Um, Is that your sense of that's where the debate is going to be in this inquiry and on the legislation? Yeah, it'll be interesting to see sort of where it lands. It's certainly where the debate is. Uh, It'll be interesting to see where it lands uh, because I suppose from a crossbench perspective, uh, they have got a bunch of things that they sought in relation to this model. Uh, Certainly not everything, and I'm not saying that public hearings are unimportant, quite the contrary, but they've, they've emerged from this process of discussion with the government with most of their wish list dealt with. Then there's the issue of public hearings. Now, I think uh, the what the government is attempting to do, I think, is to try and get something that the whole parliament can vote for. And that might sound like, why would you even bother, right? Like the uh, Scott Morrison promised for a whole term to bring in an integrity commission, did nothing, called it a fringe issue, you know, uh, said to journalists, why are you asking me these pesky questions? Who needs that crap sort of, right? Like why would you even bother to deal with the coalition? I can understand some people would feel that way. I've said before, though, I think it actually would be quite important getting back to that bugbear that I've got about integrity and accountability that I think it would be quite an important gesture, actually, if the Parliament of Australia could agree on a model for an anti-corruption commission that isn't a joke, right? I think that would be quite an important milestone in our democracy, given where we are, given the history of, given recent histories, right? Um, it's a judgment call, of course, if you're Mark Dreyfus, um, how much you trade away for that moment, right? Obviously, you don't want to trade away things that are really substantive in terms of the way this commission will operate. You don't want to do that. Um, because that's obviously, you know, even if you didn't care about the issues, and I think Mark Dreyfus as an eminent lawyer does care about the issues, but in terms of the politics, if you're Labor and you campaigned on establishing an integrity commission, you do not want to be dragged down by the coalition to something suboptimal, right? So it's a judgment call. It's a point-in-time judgment call about, you know, where you end up on that. Um So, like I said, sort of stripping this back, I think that's the motivation predominantly. Can we get something that everybody can live with, right? Liberal Party, um, crossbench, Labor, and, of course, the major party internals on this issue is different to the internals in the Greens and the internals in terms of the crossbench, right? There will be a spectrum of views in the Labor Party about about an integrity commission, how how swinging and sweeping it should be, uh, and and we've seen, you know, the coalition was paralysed for more than a term. It was unable to bring forward a proposition because it, it there were there was a very big spectrum of views inside the coalition about whether or not there should be an integrity commission at all. So it's sort of like I know that again, it's probably more detailed than than we all need, but I'm just I'm trying to sort of paint all of the moving parts for people. So, because sometimes you can look at it 
look at a set of propositions and think to yourself, how the hell did that happen? That makes no sense. And from the outside, sometimes it makes no sense. From the inside, though, there are all these moving parts that are trying to be accommodated. Now, obviously, we'll see. I, I think I, I do think that's my gut feeling. Um, they're going for this moment that the whole parliament can get behind that then creates a judgment call on the crossbench. Is this, is this okay or not? Or is this a sort of fatal trade-off? So far, the crossbench has been very constructive on that point. Um, and then it's a case of whether or not Peter Dutton can keep the coalition together on this too, or whether they start spinning off, you know, and demanding all kinds of other things, right? In which case that'll kill the deal and mm. Labor, will, Labor will pass this with a crossbench. And so, you know, we've got a little way to go on this, um, but but that's, again, I'm trying to be explicit to people so that people understand that these are all the different elements, I suppose. And if Peter Dutton has more or less said he thinks it gets the balance right and then the government shifts on public hearings back to just in the public interest. Yeah. Is that enough then to sink it? Does that totally throw it completely out of balance? Is that well, that one thing? Well, it's sort of, yeah, it's kind of, it's like, God, it's, I sort of view it, you know, it's sort of, it's like an orchestra, you know, you've sort of got all these little elements that you've got to tune up, right, that it's all somehow got to fit together. Does it scuttle the whole thing? I mean, look, Dutton's got a political problem, Right. Um, obviously, you know, the Liberal Party, you know, suffered a colossal rout at, at the last election. Um, part of the reason for that was, you know, Morrison's incredible miscalculation on the Integrity Commission. Dutton, from his first press conference, has been trying to push the coalition to a point where they will accept an integrity commission, right? That's been obvious since the get-go. Um, so, you know, the government's given Dutton a little bit of cover with his own people, uh, just like if Dutton pushes the friendship, uh, the whole balance of the orchestra shifts. Mm. So I think it, it feels like the next few weeks. It feels like they at the moment they've all got more to gain from agreeing than anyone has got from disagreeing. Um, so the far, teal, that's the, dynamic, the teals yeah. land their big agenda item. Labor makes good its promise. The coalition is not seen as being anti the corruption, and yeah, it, it does it does make me reflect on the different. And I'm, I'm sure you go into this in your essay as well, Catherine. But the different theory of government, like Labor, is trying to take the heat out of the issue and land it that everyone can own it. Whereas you could imagine the other side would have just been looking for the. The, the, the points of friction to exploit and amplify. Well, I think it's sort of, yeah, and, and in this, that's why I suppose I'm, I'm, I'm not saying to people I'm totally indifferent about whether or not there's public hearings. Obviously a body like this needs public hearings because otherwise it, it will not have a public mandate. It will not have public confidence, right? It needs to have public hearings. It's, that is in the public interest, right? Um, politicians will want a high bar, as the trigger on when something is a public hearing and when it isn't, because these these bodies are not courts, right? They're not. They don't act in the same way as courts. So, yeah, I think sort of institutional players in politics would like the moment of getting this thing done. You know, it's it's quite a strong body. You can argue about the public hearings, but it's quite a strong body. I think the point about whistleblowers that the questioner asked is actually really critically important. 
but you can deal with that separately to the Integrity Commission. I think that whole idea, if we don't strengthen protection for whistleblowers, it's a chicken and egg proposition, right? What does an ICAC do without decent whistleblowers? And whistleblowers don't come forward without better protection. It's a very sound legal principle, but you don't necessarily have to do it all here, right, in this in this body. Anyway, it's, it's probably far more explanation than we need, but I think the moment matters. As a reporter on this institution, looking at the country that I serve and this institution serves, I think getting that moment would be a good thing for the country if we can. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, as you said, it's something that the public demanded as well. Like we saw this was such a huge issue at the last election. We've been talking about a climate supermajority, but there's an integrity supermajority as well in the parliament with a mandate on this issue. Um, And yeah, it's not going to fix all the problems, but it's a, it's a good start and, you know, full credit to the attorney general for, getting it, the legislation to parliament within kind of the first six months and really the fact that there's kind of have we done enough to protect whistleblowers and, and the threshold for public hearings, pretty much it's a it's a very strong start, you know, uh, the legislation overall. Um, but as you've said, Catherine, it is, they are, public hearings are important for actually fighting both yeah. corruption. Yeah. That's uh, one of the key functions of the commission um we've probably only got time for one more question uh i've got a few more stage three ones in here a couple of questions about liz trusts and the uk situation that's kind of lobbed in at the last minute but it does seem relevant to our um our circumstances and 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 the policy discussion that we're having, I guess the difference is ours are already legislated and theirs were kind of, you know, yeah. there was a, a moment there with our introduce, which makes them a bit different. But um, it's yeah, quite an extraordinary start for this Prime Minister oh, of the UK. Well, well you know. I, I wondered when you said it, there was a question about Liz Truss, whether or not the question was how does, you know, how did Britain find a Prime Minister that made Boris Johnson look good? I wondered if that was the question. Well, they have. They've found one. I mean, oh, no. it takes a unique kind of genius, but there it is. Um, I reckon Jeremy Corbyn could have won that one. Oh, boy. It's, it's, it's just, look, I don't, I don't know much about Liz Truss. I mean, I've obviously read her biography like others. Boris Johnson's a much more known figure in Australia than, um, than Liz Truss is. Uh, but, uh, God, it's just extraordinary. And, uh, and that, look, I mean, obviously, I suppose in the, in the new Prime Minister's defence, she would have been very focused on winning the Tory leadership ballot and possibly less focused on the policy that followed afterwards. Um, perhaps it's a bandwidth issue, but to be absolutely screamed down by your own people to the point where you, you, you know, I gather she did a whole bunch of pre-recorded radio interviews where she said she was standing by the package and a lot of those pre-packaged Radio interviews hit the news cycle in the morning when the tweet hit, right? Oh, actually, you know, we've reverse ferreted. It's like, it's pretty spectacular. As unravelings go, um, there was a nice piece of commentary, I'll just say this quickly, in The Guardian uh, overnight from uh, Pippa Crea. I think I have her surname correctly. She's my counterpart in the US, in the UK. An obvious line, but a good one. The comment piece was, it, it seems the lady was for turning. Uh, well we might leave it there and uh and i for one will be hoping that our treasurer is returning on stage three in the budget uh but we'll pick up this conversation i'm sure in a fortnight from now it's great to have you back Catherine murphy thanks again pete lewis for taking us through all the numbers 
That's it for today. Thank you all so much for listening to our podcast version of Pole Position, which is hosted in the webinar version by the Australia Institute. Just a reminder, if you're listening, to go to the Essential Media website to pull up the slides about the latest polling data. This episode was produced by Alison Chan and Joe Koenig, and the executive producer this week is Molly Glassie. Thanks for listening.